Welcome to the FPA Business Before Technology podcast, where our goal is to provide small business owners and key decision makers with valuable nuggets to help you grow or simply improve how you run your business, ultimately looking to increase your profitability. My name is Craig Pollock. I'm the founder and CEO of FPA Technology Services, and I'm your host for this podcast. Do you ever wonder what other business owners are running up against out there? Are you too busy working in your business to work on your business? Do you ever feel like you're in this thing alone? Are you at a crossroad with your business where some new ideas would help? For nearly 30 years, I've been helping companies grow and improve their businesses by leveraging technology, whether it's software, hardware, on-prem, or in the cloud, and at the same time, building FPA into the premier IT service provider in the greater Los Angeles area. This experience has given me exposure to hundreds of businesses and all sorts of systems, and as a lifelong learner, has helped me gather all I could about the ins and outs of running a business. And these are the sorts of things I want to share with you on this podcast. I'm excited for today's podcast because we get to dive into an aspect of technology we don't often get to touch on. Today, we're speaking with John Troxell, who is a certified computer forensic investigator. John works cases requiring super advanced technical expertise. Uh, specifically computer forensics. An investigator since 1997, he's directed cases all over the country as well as several overseas with a proficiency in developing evidence from computers and associated media. John is frequently engaged to identify, collect, analyze, and produce electronic evidence on digital storage media such as hard drives and cell phones and things like that. And he's qualified in California Superior Court to provide expert testimony. He's also often asked to speak on issues related to electronic evidence. He's a member of the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners Academy, the High Technology Crime Investigation Association, and the Paraben Forensics and Technosecurity. Easily a cybersecurity expert. So here we go. Here's my conversation with John. Great. Well, welcome to the podcast, John. I appreciate you and your time here. Um, Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing this morning? I uh, doing great. Thanks. Good to be here. Yeah, I appreciate that. So, John Troxel, uh, your your company is VRI Forensics and Investigations. Yeah, yeah. Britic Resources is the official corporate name, but on, online cool. VRI uh, Forensics and Investigations is is sort of how we're branded. Yeah. So tell me a little bit. Um, you are the guru expert at, at computer forensics and investigations. You know, working in IT, there there's so many different veins of IT. So tell me a little bit about you know what exactly is computer forensics, and then maybe a little bit of your background about how you got to be in this area. I guess to someone in IT, the closest thing that I think we would we would have an overlap would be in the area of incident response. Mm-hmm. You probably do some cybersecurity, Craig. We do quite a bit of that, but not yeah. not on the forensic side. So this, this is a great conversation for us. Yeah. So I'm sure you have calls of responding to a breach or some type of intrusion event that you need to get to. It's uh, on the reaction side of things, right? Mm-hmm. Where I know a lot of a lot of people and managers, MSPs that offer cybersecurity, they they're very proactive mm-hmm. um, and and trying to 
harden networks and keep things from data from growing feet and walking off. But I'm on the, the reactive side. So I am called in when something happens, like an employee will share something that they shouldn't share, access something that is off limits, like proprietary data or maybe even illegal information, just overall doing something dumb, right? Employees mm -hmm. use their company resources for things that they shouldn't use it. It's, it's stuff like that that keeps me in business. Right. Uh, so right. basically somebody will do something and, and I mentioned employees, but it could be someone in a marital relationship. It could be somebody that's involved with litigation where there's evidence stored on their hard drive. Something will, will trigger a need for me to go in there and grab evidence off of a computer or a cell phone or a, a network storage device or, or wherever digital information is stored and can be recovered as evidence. So I go in and I grab it. There are forensic protocols in place. Make sure we, we get it in a, the right way, preserve it, analyze it, and then I can testify on it as well. Okay. So it's just to clarify, how much do you think your business does responding to breaches and hacks versus something that's more, I guess, as a response to sort of a legal situation? Yeah. So those incident response calls are probably 5%. Okay. So it's mostly yeah. around, around some sort of investigation or case or, or something like that. Uh, that's exactly it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, you know, looking at your background and training, I have to say it's, it's one, it's quite extensive and two, it's some of the stuff is just intense. The background that you've gone through in terms of your access data, NTI Armor, Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, High Technology Crime Investigation Association, I can go on and on and on. And you have your California PI license. Definitely not something that you just sort of fell into. Definitely something that you've actively been working at. I mean, that, that's quite impressive. Yeah, yeah. I've started doing this in 2003. You know, and I, I started doing investigations. Uh, I, I had some skills from from a, a previous employment uh, mm -hmm. that you know was specific to to computers. Right? I, I worked on Unix boxes, so you know it was a step above what the typical person who uses a PC will do. So I had some skills, and it just made mm -hmm. sense for me to use those skills to serve my clients in a different way. So back in '03. I started the training with doing computer forensics, and that's when we would boot up a system with a floppy diskette. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hard drives are like 20 or 40 gigabytes is all. All the tools were command line driven and DOS. It was really quick, really easy to, to get this stuff. Mm -hmm. Now we're, we're talking multiple terabytes in, in size of acquisitions of hard drives and such. And even cell phones are getting to be you know, 500 gigabytes and they're getting big. Right, so it right. just, it's just has changed the way we do things and the amount of time it takes and uh, opportunities for us to help manage expectations with our clients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would think, so. I mean, literally needle in a haystack sort of searching where you're looking for things or looking, I mean, how does that sort of play out? Do the tools look for specific things or do they look for sort of indicators? And then like the human touch has to sort of analyze what's found and see if it makes sense. How does that sort of play out? Well, that's a great, great analogy that I've heard, the needle in the haystack. But if I tie a magnet to a string, I can drag it through a haystack and pick that needle up, right? So what mm -hmm. I like to, to look at, the what we do is more like a needle in a needle stack. It's all data and trying to sift through contextually what is evidence and what isn't is how we spend a lot of our time. I'm sorry. 
Did that, that did that address your question? <laughs> uh, sort of, I guess. How do the tools, I would assume, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but the tools sort of narrow down and get you to someplace. And then you, is there like a human sort of evaluation looking at some of the data to make sense of it and see, yes, that's, that is what I'm looking for, or that's not what I'm looking for. Like maybe I'm getting a little too technical for our listeners, but just sort of curious on my own. Yeah, no, that that's a good question. It'd be nice if we could just do a push button sort of a situation where we it'll spit out exactly what we need, but there is a human element because there, there's context, right? Mm-hmm. You know, just because there's an email between two people that says the word widget, so what? But if it says widget in, in context of what he's going to do with it and who he's going to do it with and narrow that down to a specific date and see that other people are copied on this kind of a transmission. Well, that that's different. You're familiar with that hash algorithm, mm-hmm. like an MD5. So if you hash a file, it comes up with essentially what is a digital fingerprint, right? That hash mm-hmm. value. I can hash a, like a Word document, hash it, and it comes up with this alphanumeric representation of what that file is. And then if I go in and change the contents, even if I just add a space, it completely changes what the hash value is. Mm-hmm. Well, there are known hash values for uh, different file types. Organizations that feed them are like the FBI and other law enforcement related entities. They'll feed it full of all of these hash values. And some of them can be on something simple as the executable for Word, or it could be on a known image of that is child pornography. So that hash value goes into a database And we can search the whole hard drive with just hash values without even looking at everything. Hmm. And if if we start seeing these hashes pop up, these hash values will show us that there is illegal images on this without us even have to look at them, right? So so that is the push button element of it. But those are known images where the hash values are have already been fed into the HashKeeper database. Right. There has to be also an element of putting your own eyes on it to identify whether or not something is what we're looking for, if it is evidence or not, right? So there is that push button element. And really, there's even some parts of the program that will tell you there is so much percentage of skin content. So that, that, again, helps narrow it down to where it's the computer doing a lot of the work. But that hasn't completely negated the need for someone like me to to jump in and give it some, some eyes on it. Mm-hmm. So when, when you get called into a situation, do, do people like, is it a generalized situation? Hey, we think something might be going on here. Can you look for it? Or is it very specific? Like, Hey, uh, we think that our intellectual property, which contains X, Y, and Z might've been leaked. Can you look for that? Like, what would you say that sort of plays out in terms of your day to day? More of what we we get is the latter. There, there's a there's a specific suspicion, so mm-hmm. we we'll go in there and grab the computer and search for um, evidence based on the criteria you just mentioned, right? If that subject on certain dates or or whatever, we'll search for those and we'll see the results. And if the results have meaning to them, meaning, yeah, look at this file with this keyword was put onto a USB flash drive or was sent to a personal email address then that's something, that's evidence. But also, I had one uh, last week where a woman's assistant 
uh, was terminated and she was afraid that she had been taking stuff with her, maybe with a, with a USB or maybe mm -hmm. in some other fashion, transmitting uh, proprietary data. All of her clients are well-known celebrities. So it's really important that they keep that data secure. Right. And she was worried that some of it may have left via that, that MacBook. Mm -hmm. So that was the more of the casting a wider net to see what comes up situation. And so we did it and, you know, we'll spend some time looking at, you know, the registry or equivalent to see if there was any kind of activities like plugging in USB drives or, or something, the last known files that were used or transmitted or, or edited, that sort of a thing. And we'll give it a, a few hours. And if we don't see any low hanging fruit, then that generally means there's probably not a lot of encouragement to dig deeper. Mm -hmm. have, have you run across that? Is that, is that, and when I say that, the ability, the, have you run across a situation where you could, you, you know, you could definitely say, Hey, somebody plugged a USB drive in here, copied these files. And now, you know, obviously you don't know where they went once, once the USB drive is taken out and, and move someplace physically someplace else. But have you run into those situations where you'll be able to audit and see that the USB drive was plugged in and things were copied and here you go? Yeah, definitely. So you're familiar with the registry, like on a Windows uh -huh. computer. So yeah, of course. When you plug in a device into your computer, it maps that in the registry, right? Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, this, this SanDisk or whatever USB flash drive is plugged in and it's given a record in the registry, but it's also mapped to the D drive or whatever. Right. Um, and then there are other places in the registry where it'll show if there's a file path like D colon slash, and then it shows a file from that computer that is mapped to that D drive. Well, that's, that's indicative of something that was on the computer that was put onto the USB flash drive. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people out there who don't realize how much is is being tracked underneath, right? Without our knowledge, not necessarily with the intent of being big brother as much as I think more around troubleshooting and problem solving and let's keep, you know, here's an audit trail of what's going on, but it is. I mean, that's 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 the world we live in these days. Everything has an audit that. trail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no question. So is it possible, I'm going to ask you this question, is, is it possible for you to share like one or two stories without giving away, you know, any sort of proprietary information or, or you know, secure information? Can, is there any way to give us, you know, maybe cleaned up, hey, this is something I've run into once or twice, or, you know, what would be maybe one of your most interesting stories that you were called upon to figure out? Oh, you know... One that, that sticks out, 19-year-old young woman working at a company, and the company is owned by two people, one of whom is about in his mid-70s, sweet old guy, and the other one is a professional athlete, well-known. The older guy, he's just kind of an affectionate, huggy sort of a guy, mm -hmm. probably inappropriate in the workplace. When I met him, it, there was kind of a bro hug sort of a thing, you know, it's just, just a real uh -huh. warm right. guy and harmless. Right. However, mm -hmm. it wasn't well received around the office with one, one person. It was this 19 year old woman. So she had told some of the people at work that, you know, this is sexual harassment and that she might pursue this. 
So the people at work were loyal to the owner. So they, they immediately told him, he notified his employment law lawyer, his attorney, mm-hmm. uh, who got a hold of me. So we went in. So the day ends, right? We, we go in there and we want to see maybe if she's communicated on her work computer about this to some of the other work associates or contacted somebody. We want we just want to see what her activities were on her work computer. Mm-hmm. So I, I imaged it, which is a way to forensically preserve the data. And then I analyzed it. And there was some pretty interesting things. One was I can look at a person's Google search history. So mm-hmm. she was searching for nude photos of her boss's partner. First name, last name, nude photos in, uh, in Google. Hmm. That was interesting. And then I'd say, yeah. <laughs> and then okay. also, you know, I'm, I love Facebook. It's a great mm-hmm. way to stay in contact with friends and see their pictures of their kids and stuff. And my, my site's secure, right? It's only my friends can see all my pictures. Same with hers. Couldn't see it. However, she, she accessed her Facebook account at work. And as you know, when you are in your browser, things are cached to your hard drive. So even though we couldn't get into her Facebook account, nor, nor should we jump into somebody's password protected data that's cloud-based, mm-hmm. well, this, this, all this stuff has landed on the computer. So we were able to recreate those web pages and there were pictures of her and her friends in this, you know, parting sort of a scene where they had simulated sex scenes drunkenness, silliness kind of a Mm -hmm. thing, but the pictures sure put some context to the charges that she was leveraging against her, her employer. So all those things made a really nice report that helped adios this, this young lady from that business. So Mm. that, that one, that one was kind of fun, kind of rewarding. Right. There was another one where there was a guy who, do you have an iPhone? Of course. So you know the difference between a blue and a, and a green text, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so do you, do you want to explain that to our listeners just in case people don't know? Yeah, <laughs> first thoughts in my mind is why would I ever text somebody with a green? I'm just kidding. No, yeah, the 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 blue is iMessage, and it's a it's an app that's between Apple devices. So it goes through Apple headquarters basically, but it goes from iPhone to iMac to MacBook wherever iMessage is put, and it doesn't hit the hit the cell towers. Whereas the green ones, that's SMS, uh, simple message service text messages, which are, which are recorded by the cell towers that go from anything that's not an iPhone, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So this guy who he's a former, he was far, working for a company and he went to another company. He advised his former employer that he, he did not contact any or, or receive any communication from any of the firm clients. So there's no way that there's no way that he was trying to take proprietary information with them, address mm-hmm. list, phone list, whatever. Right. So they had, they asked me to search his phone to verify that. And I did. So I, I have a, I use a product called Celebrite. So I, I did an acquisition and I analyzed it and there were no text messages from him or to him from a list of the phone numbers that the company had given me as, as their clients. However, one thing that a lot of people don't know is that messages are logged. So even though the, the substance was not there, there's a log file on the, on the iPhone that shows all the transmissions between phone numbers. The location for that is in this iMessage is a check that Apple does when you are going to text somebody 
it mm-hmm. does a verification as whether or not that is going to an iPhone or a non or non Apple device. Right. So it's so in the log file it shows it that this little handshake or, or authorization attempts are being made. Mm-hmm. Um, so so even though there was no text messages found on his i on the, the actual device, tons of of log entries show that there were connections being made between the two because Apple was being queried to see if the other other phones for iPhones or not. Right. So that one was kind of, kind of fun too. So we didn't see direct evidence of the substance of those, but there was definitely some shenanigans happening between him and, and the other, or in those uh, firm clients. Right. Wow. That's uh, it's pretty interesting stuff. I mean, this is like definitely private eye in the 21st century, right? It's like, you're, you're definitely trying to put together a puzzle based on this information that otherwise, you know, people who don't understand or, or don't have your background in it are just going to see it as, as zeros and ones, as just bits and bytes. But you're putting together the connections that this, this language is communicating without communicating, if that makes sense. Sure, sure. That's and pretty interesting. A lot, a lot of uh, problem solving. I would think you're really uh, into the problem solving sort of games. You know, it's fun. It, 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 yeah. it, it's a treat when I can dig into something and, and uh-huh. have these little aha moments for sure. So that, that kind of leads into my next question, which is with all this information that you've learned and all this experience that you have, and you see how people are using their phones or computers or whatnot, has any of this sort of crept into the way you use your own computer or how you would recommend to others, you know, to use a computer? Like, you know, one of the easiest things or one of the first things that come to my mind is like, you know, how often do you clear your cache history in Chrome or, you know, are there certain things that you do that just, you know, I'm not saying that you're doing anything illegal. You're just not leaving any, any breadcrumbs that you don't otherwise necessarily want to leave out there. Yeah. You're familiar with wiping on a computer mm-hmm. on a hard drive. So yeah, if you wipe a hard drive, then that must mean you got something to hide, right? That's the assumption. But if you do it on a consistent basis, like once a month or once a week, wipe the unallocated space or that area of the hard drive that's not being used where really all the deleted information is, mm-hmm. that's a good way to make sure that sensitive information is less likely to be compromised. So mm-hmm. yeah, I don't, I don't ask, you know, there's nothing I really have to hide, but I handle a lot of sensitive data from, from clients. Right. I would think. So, right. Yeah. So when I'm working when I'm working with hard drives, I I, I want to make sure that no evidence is able to be compromised at all. So mm-hmm. so even on my computer, I, I used to have a program called um, Eraser, mm-hmm. and I set it up to every every Wednesday at midnight, it would go through and wipe the cache from the browser, mm-hmm. and it would you know, clear out all the cookies, all, all of that sort of stuff. And then it would also wipe the unallocated space or the deleted data right. is deleted. Okay. And, and do you still do that or you stop doing that? I stopped doing that I, as yeah. I, I, yeah, I found that it was just less necessary with solid state drives. Mm-hmm. So it was yeah. more of a technical reason than really a security reason per se. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. I mean, I, I agree with what you're saying in terms of, you know, if, if you don't really have anything to hide, it's sort of just 
it's the environment that we're living in now. I mean, you know, you just have to, I think there's a certain level of knowledge around, you know, what, what do these, you know, software as a service vendors, you know, where everything's cloud hosted and all of our information's up there, whether it's LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram or neighborhood or any of these portals that we're working with, they, they all save something on our hard drives. They're all saving cookies or cache files or something. To me, anyway, there's sort of two mindsets. One is the criminal mindset of I better erase it so nobody can see it. Or there's the security aspect of I better erase it so nobody can, you know, if I lose my device or somebody steals my device, they have a way to get to this information because, you know, there's cash passwords or, 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 or other pieces <laughs> of information on your machine. Yeah, the reason I started doing that was I had a, a case that involved child pornography in a marriage situation. It was in Los Angeles County. As you know, those images are illegal. So mm -hmm. it's against the law to possess them. So as soon as I have them on my computer, I am now in possession of contraband. So I did this case, did the report, submitted it to the attorney, because all my clients are lawyers, submitted it to the attorney. I was contacted because um, the LA Sheriff's Department wanted to come and confiscate my computer because it had contraband on it. Mm -hmm. Well, that makes sense, right? I guess it's kind of like having a, a bunch of dope in my drawer here. They, they would want to come and get it. So I had to jump through a lot of hoops to get them to not take my computer. So I really just wanted to head that, head that kind of an issue off. You know, if there's ever a need for someone to come and try and get stuff off of my computer, it ain't there. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's got to be an interesting twist to what you do because... I mean, it's one thing like to be a private eye or an investigator, right? And in the physical world where, you know, if, if the cops come in and they take all the contraband, right, the drugs or whatever, and you're doing an investigation, there's only one item of that physical thing. But in the digital world, you can make infinite copies of everything. And, and now what's the difference between the copy that you made to investigate versus Hey, I just want to keep a couple of copies for myself because, because whatever, right? Nefarious reasons. And that's got to be a difficult line for you to sort of walk that you're in possession of these things that clearly it's not because you want them, but it's part of your job yet you could be held accountable for having something in the wrong place on your computer that somebody from the outside might, might see the wrong way. Yeah, it was, I had a, an interesting one where I was hired by both sides on in a divorce matter, but I was appointed by the judge to serve as the expert to be jointly paid by both parties because there was an assertion of, of child pornography on that computer. And we found it. The way we got around the, the contraband issue was that I was not in possession of it. I was actually an agent of the court. So the court mm -hmm. was in possession of it, even though it was right there in my office. It, it, it's not like I was in possession of it. I was just temporarily holding it. That's kind of one way that I've seen it done. And then there's another one that's happening right now where I'm, I've been engaged by a guy who is going down on charges of child pornography unless they can somehow mitigate the charges. The Department of Justice here locally requires all analysis to be done in their office. So mm -hmm. it's contraband, doesn't leave their office at all. So if I get eyes right. on it, analysis, anything has to be done right right inside of their, their room. So that makes it a little, little easier for you, I think. I mean, harder for you to actually the physicality of dealing with all that, but easier from the per, uh, 
perspective of protecting yourself and having anything sort of yeah. end up on your computer. Right, right. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Sure is inconvenient though, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Especially these days, right? I, I read somewhere that I think, and again, you can correct me if I'm wrong or don't want to talk about it, but I think I saw something on your website about a story where it was about child pornography, but one one spouse actually put it on the other spouse's computer. Is that is that accurate or should yeah, we that's not the talk I, about that? <laughs> yeah, that's the one I referenced where I was appointed by the judge as a section uh -huh. 730 expert hired by both sides. So in that case, they were just resolving all the little issues specific to their their separation. And they were they were um, meeting again on custody. And the, the woman comes in and tells the judge that her ex-husband should not be given custody because he looked at child pornography. <laughs> he was like, there's just no way. That is baloney. And she said, I looked on my computer which was our family's computer, and it's there. So I was called in. I took possession of the of the computer, brought it back here, and I ran the searches on it. And because I had HashKeeper, the, the hashing mm -hmm. algorithm, that so there was about 20 images that just lit it right up and showed me, boom, kitty porn right there. So no question about it. And I found that each of these images were associated with this child pornography ring that would I uh, was active in Russia between 2002 and 2005, and it was fronting as a child modeling agency. Mm -hmm. um, so so these, these are known images of people that were kids 20 years ago. We identified it, identified where it came from, and how it got there was on a BitTorrent app. So they mm -hmm. used some sort of a way to, to pull it down. But what was interesting is the date that it was pulled down and landed on the hard drive was after he had already left the house. So either this woman or her or her boyfriend had put that child pornography on the computer in, a, in an attempt to to, to frame her ex husband. Mm -hmm. So we got we got the you know we got our dead to rights right. I right. mean, not only is this is this useful for the hus ex husband side as far as the custody part of it goes, but now there's a criminal case that's going to be prosecuted against her. So a deputy came to my office, took possession of, of the computer. I wiped everything off of my computer. The computer's lost. They lost right, that, right. that laptop. So they were unable to, to have any evidence against her, except for what was in my report. And what was in my report were not pictures. It was just mm -hmm. references indicating it. So custody resolved in his favor, but the criminal thing did not go forward. Because they lost the computer. They lost the computer. That's I mean, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I wonder and if she, you know, wonder who she knew in the police department. <laughs> well, <and> I know <laughs> not, not saying anything, but yeah. No, I know that the guy who took possession of it, he's a good deputy, good guy uh -huh. at the Camera Airport. Mm -hmm. um, there's a interagency task force composed of several of the police departments, sheriff's department, secret service. And they all sort of share, you know, human capital resources to, to work on a lot of these cases. It could be buried in there somewhere because it's there's a lot of stuff and backlog they got over there. Right, right. Yeah, I'm sure it's quote unquote lost, but yeah. I mean, it's lost <laughs> to them from a tracking perspective, but that's unfortunate. Um, right. That's uh there's some interesting stuff here. So no question. Do you you know, does this require you like ongoing training? Do you have like ongoing certification that you have to keep up like how does how do you, how do you stay current with these tools and you know the changes that are constantly happening 
there's nothing uniform with respect to training or ongoing training or whatever, but this discipline has its genesis in law enforcement in the 90s, really. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the law enforcement kind of associate related associations, one of them you mentioned, the High Tech Crime Investigation Association, they, they, there's training that's provided. I mean, there's their certification that some of these associations will, will provide. And then there's vendor-specific certifications as well for the cell phone package I use, Celebrite, and the the various computer forensics things, they're probably good to have if you're testifying. I tested every year for some of these starting back in 2007. And I kind of have this idea where my knowledge and experience sort of transcends any of those, those EIEIO type letters that used to be after my name. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. I mean, more than just the individual applications. I think it comes back to, you know, do you master the tool or do you master the concepts? And I think the concepts are what's more important. The tool can change from year to year. Right? Well, yeah. And, and and my point was, you know, knowing how to do a mail merge and, and word doesn't make you a great writer. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, completely different. Is there a difference in terms of ease of tool set, figuring this stuff out between a Windows-based computer and a Mac? or Windows and Linux? Like, is there a difference between them? And are some harder than easy, you know, than others to, to crack this sort of information there? Uh, Windows is by far the easiest to analyze, to work with, to do the, the full computer forensics analysis on. They're really logically set out. I've been doing them so long on them that they mm-hmm. just kind of make sense to me. Macs are just tough. I mean, there's there's not a lot of tools that do them well. Like for example, my one of my best tools was processing a, it's called an AFF4 image that Max make. It, it was processing it and 24 hours into it, I just couldn't, I killed the process. I use a different tool and then it resolved in under eight hours. So these are tough. And plus we need passwords. Um, mm-hmm. The windows, we can get around it unless it's bit lockered, but on, on, on Macs, Macs are really, really nice to own. They work well. They're pretty. They, they're secure. A lot of things make them user-friendly. I always tell people, get a Mac, but make sure your employees have Windows so we can, we can analyze their <laughs> stuff and you can be right. certain that your stuff's secure. Right. Because we Is do it- need a password to, to get into their stuff for the most part. Right. Okay. That's good to know. Now, is there a difference between, you know, on phones, between an an iPhone and let's say, you know, an Android. Is there a difference in terms of cracking what's going on there or tracking what's going on there? There is. And it's not only the iPhone, but it's which iPhone and which iOS version hmm. is on there. So Celebrite will have various profiles for for dumping these phones. And that's like the best they can do sort of a thing. And when iOS 15 came out, it was months before we were able to, to get into it because it just took a long time for the forensics appli- application people to, to write code to be able to pull it. So they're, so it's not like just an iPhone, but it's what which iPhone, but they're easier than, than those Androids. I mean, Are they? And, yeah. Androids, you got to put in developer mode. You got to, I mean, there, there's so many little things that you have to do. And it's not only the the flavor of Android, but it's also which which manufacturer. So there's a lot of differences. Hmm. I didn't realize that. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. 
So you're hoping that if you ever, when you get called in on a case, it's like, well, what kind of phone do they have and what kind of computer do they have? And that's right. Yeah. I need that in advance. That's interesting. So what kind of computer do you use? Do you use Windows or do you use Macs or both or? Yeah, I use both. I got iMac and MacBook. I got, uh-huh. I got a few Windows computers. The, the thing is, is I think all but like one app uh, in the forensics world were written for Windows. Mm-hmm. So I, I've got to have I've got to have Windows machines to right. work on. Right, that kind of drives that. So, what kind of phone do you have? I have an iPhone because okay. it just works, right? <laughs> it I just mean, works, right? <laughs> it's easier. I like it, and you know, I get a little dopamine hit every time I see somebody else has a blue bubble when they text me. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not it's going through iMessage and not <laughs> the right. Yeah, not the cell tower. Good to know. So are there any, any helpful hints or anything that you'd care to share uh, that, you know, computer users should be thinking about out there or when it comes to protecting themselves or any, anything you'd like to share? Yeah. So there's this idea that if there's this idea that it, once it hits, hits your computer, it's always there. And that's just not true. I mean, eventually data that is deleted will be overwritten by new data, right? A lot of times we'll have clients uh, that will need to have a computer analyzed, but they know they shouldn't get rid of anything. So they'll just tell the user not to delete anything, but just the continued operation of a computer causes deleted data to be overwritten. So if you were to send me a preservation letter that says, don't delete anything. And I was to download the Hobbit and the Mm -hmm. Godfather series. Well, you know, there's several gigabytes of space that it's going to take up potentially overriding evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's one of the common things is make sure that, that when you preserve it's cheap insurance, just to pop a hard drive out and put a new one in or to, right. or to create a, a bit by bit image of a, of a device. Right. I don't think, you know, most people who use computers are not technical people. Right. And they don't understand that for instance, you know, maybe we're getting a little, little deep here, but the reality is, is, is the file tables, the file structure that keeps track of everything that's on a hard drive. When you delete it, like you said, it doesn't delete it. It deletes the first character of the file and everything else is still there until, like you said, it starts getting reused and recycled. And when I say recycled, not the recycle bin, but just the actual low level hard drive. Yeah. Those data clusters will just have new data in there. But you know, if, if you have a big file getting overwritten by a small file, mm-hmm. well, then we, we could recover um, a partial file, a partial image, a partial document. Right. But to your point, it makes sense that drives are so cheap these days that if you ever catch yourself in a situation where you want to retain some data, you want to retain something because you don't know what, you know, what, whatever the reason or the driver is, don't use it. Just pop that hard drive out, put a new one in and and save that. Otherwise you don't realize that what you see isn't really what's going on on the hard drive itself. And you could be mucking up some evidence back there. Right. And, you know, when an employee terminates and they, you know, months can go by, then you realize when you're getting sued by them that you should analyze their computer, which Mm -hmm. has already been reformatted and reallocated to somebody else in the office. Right. Right. It's a little late by then. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, I think we're kind of coming up on, on our time here. Is there, you know, anything that you care to share about you or your firm, anything special that, you know, somebody would, wouldn't know looking at you? I see a, I see a 
huge is that a is that a bass behind you? I'm not sure. I'm not good with fish. It's a uh, brown trout. Caught that on the Green River in Utah on a wow. fly. It's 28 inches long. It is. It was a lot of. That was a good day. <laughs> that's that's a big trout. That's it yeah. Is. That's big. So you're a big big fisherman. Not as much anymore, but I. Yeah. I you know, when you're knee deep in a trout stream, listening to the water and that's it, it's just, just really, really nice. It's a great, I can do that for one day and feel like I've gone on vacation. Mm-hmm. Boy, I couldn't, I couldn't, if, if somebody said, you know, what's 180 degrees from computer forensics, I, I guess I could think of fly fishing in Utah, um, <laughs> but that's, such opposite, probably in a good way, right? It does, right. you know, it does take your mind off of all these things. But I'm opening um, an office in Utah, so maybe I'll. Are you? Awesome. Yeah. yeah okay. So it'll be restricted to just the computer forensics work up there, mm-hmm. um, but that'll allow me a little more chance to wet a line, right. get my myself in the water. <laughs> Which sounds perfect on a day like today. I think it's uh, approaching 85 or 90 degrees here. Oh, so, man. um, yeah. So anyway, thank you. Any, any, any other parting advice for any business owners out there? Any, you know, do you have any special books that you've read or any podcasts you listen to, or, you know, anything in the non-forensic world that you care to share, or I'll just throw that out there for you. You know, the, the most common mistake people make is waiting too long mm-hmm. and not jumping at it, jumping on it. It could be weeks. It could be a year. And I've, I've been called in just when evidence has already been overwritten. So if you think there's the slightest opportunity that there's evidence on, on there, it's nothing just to take that thing out of commission and wait, you know, archive it or, or put it in a place just in case you need it. So if you think you're going to need to, to maybe look at something later on on the line, image it, preserve it. That's great advice. Yeah. I think that's something we could all utilize. If you have any sort of inkling out there, definitely, you know, be proactive and take it out of commission and just save it just in case. Good stuff. Well, thanks, John. I appreciate your time. This is super informative. I think it definitely explained a lot and you shared a lot with us. And I think really opened up, you know, sort of the difference in what, what computer forensics is versus generalized IT or cybersecurity, you know, or even responding to a cyber threat, whether that's ransomware or, or something else. So thank you so much. I appreciate that. And, and definitely John Troxel is the guy to contact for any sort of forensic work. If you, if you want to get in touch with him, we'll have his email address and other, you know, his website and other contact information on the show notes. But yeah, thanks, John. I appreciate it. And I uh, look forward to continuing our conversations offline and uh, our friendship offline. So thanks so much about your time. I appreciate it. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, John. And that was John Troxel, Certified Computer Forensic Investigator with VRI Forensics and Investigations. What a great conversation. I hope you found it as educational as I did. Always great to dive into the mind of a subject matter expert like John. There were certainly a lot of nuggets there. Thanks again, John, for your time and sharing all of your great thoughts with our listeners. If you'd like to find out more about what John has to offer or want to connect with him, check out the show notes for more details. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. To learn more about this episode or hear previous episodes, 
Check out the show notes at www.fpainc.com slash podcast. And if you like today's show, please do us a favor and share it with your friends. We'd really appreciate getting the word out there. And you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do give us a review. Again, we'd really appreciate that. You can also write to us at podcast at fpainc.com. And if you want to send us a tweet, our handle on Twitter is at F-P-A-I-N-C. I'm Craig Bollock, and you've been listening to the FPA Business Before Technology podcast. And remember, with FPA, it's always about business before technology. Take care. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.